Proverbs 18, and the title tonight is The Name of the Lord is a Strong Tower. The Name of the Lord is a Strong Tower, and it's from one of the verses in Proverbs 18 this evening. The main theme of Proverbs 18, beginning with verse 1 through, chap, or through Proverbs 19, verse 5, the main thing, theme is about building character, building character. And God cares about our character. And even though there's not a lot of doctrine about the subject of character in Proverbs, it's simple principles and morals that come from a, a proper biblical view of God and man. Because belief and behavior are inseparable. Remember that. Belief and behavior are inseparable no matter what. You know, we can say we believe in God. We believe in the Bible. But you know what? Our behavior has to be in line with what we say we believe. Paul said in Romans 5.21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said this, You can judge the quality of their faith from the way they behave. Discipline is an index to doctrine. Again, everything that we do, everything that we say, our behavior should be in line with what God's word says. So let's begin now with verse 1 of Proverbs 18. And it says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. In other words, he who willfully separates himself and estranges himself from God and man seeks his own desire and excuse to do his own thing or to break out against all wise and sound judgment. It's not a wise thing to do to isolate yourself. Basically, what Solomon is saying is that when a person separates themselves to lust or gives themselves over to lust and give themselves over to their own desires, they will start living after their own flesh. They'll start living after what they want to do what their flesh is craving to do they the people themselves get in the way of all wisdom a man who is looking to fulfill his own passions to do what he desires separates himself to a lustful life because these bodies you know the, the when we're living in the flesh and walking in the flesh they're wanting to do what they want to do it's a lustful life in other words Whatever I want, whatever it craves, you know, physical, sexual, emotional, whatever, I, I will go after, I will do. And so he's really getting in the way of wisdom or is far from real wisdom as he moves about in the flesh. And it may not be wise to live after your own passions and lusts. And that's, that seems to be a for sure thing. You know, that's the life of the flesh. 
It's a life that is ruled by your own lusts, your own desires. By, you know, so it's not a wise thing to live that kind of a life. For example, if, you know, if somebody wants to be a doctor, they will spend the next several years dedicating themselves to become a doctor. And in the process, you know, anything, anything that you set a goal for, and in this particular example, to become a doctor, in that process of becoming a doctor, they will separate themselves. They will separate themselves from friends, from worldly amusements, from fun, from socializing until they have reached their goal. In other words, there's a price to pay for knowledge and wisdom. Verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Boy, is that the truth. They don't have a delight in taking in knowledge or wanting to understand. All they want to do is express themselves. They just want to talk out of their own heart. A professor once said, if I stop to think before I speak, I won't have to worry afterward about what I said before. King James Version says, his heart may discover itself. And the word there, discover, means vent. Vent. In other words, all a fool wants to do is sound off. You know, they seem to like to hear their own voice or to hear themselves talk. They want to have their own way. And the guy who wants to vent, the, the, the person who wants to vent and makes himself known and express themselves, uh, he, he just, he, he just, he doesn't care what he says. He just has to have his own way. He just wants to speak. He doesn't care what he says or that he might hurt other people in what he says. He just wants to be allowed to vent his anger and to blurt out his feelings or his opinions. And again, does not care what he says or, or, or does even though it might hurt other people. He just wants to be allowed to vent his anger. Again, to just blurt out his opinion. You, you can't just give your opinion when you feel like it. The timing has to be right. The place has to be right. The words have to be right. The spirit of the person speaking and the spirit of the receiver has to be right. You know... It, the way a message is received has a lot to do with the spirit in which that message is given. But a fool, Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool vents all of his feelings. He just lets it spew. He has to practice self-control. And the Bible has its fair share of these kinds of people. They go all the way back to Cain. Shammai and Nabal, they were all in this category. This kind of a characteristic is bad enough in ordinary people, but it's a lot worse when it comes from people who should know better. Like leaders in important positions. Verse 3. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. In other words, doing wrong leads to disgrace, and disgraceful behavior brings contempt. Another modern verb, uh, proverb is this. Some persons cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. This would apply to those mentioned in this verse. 
These, uh, these are some of the people who also bring a lot of sorrow into the world. Verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. In other words, the words of a discreet and wise man's mouth are like deep waters. Plenteous and difficult to, 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 to fathom. And the fountain of skillful and godly wisdom, Solomon says, it's like a gushing stream. Because it's, it's sparkling and it's fresh and it's pure and it gives life. And something the Bible teaches us that our words come from deep inside our heart. And, and we need to remember that. Our heart and our words are a mixture of our character. And, and somebody said that th- th- they think that our tongue is wired to our heart. And they think it is. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Think of that now. Out of all that's in a person's heart, it comes out of the mouth. And sometimes we, we, we say those little things like um, that they're, they're in a joking manner, I guess you could say. But yet, and, and it was, ah, you know, I'm only kidding, I'm only joking. But in reality, there is some kind of seriousness to it because it just didn't come out of anywhere in the heart. From the abundance of the heart, our mouth does speak. And remember, your heart, my heart is a seedbed of truth. It's a seedbed of truth. And sometimes, man, our words, they just come pouring out like a flood. And you know what? They can leave their mark on people, whether it's for the better or for the worse. Verse 5. It is not good to show, the part, to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Solomon says it's not right to free the guilty or deny justice to those that are innocent. And, and, and I think we see a lot of that today in our court system. You know, we let the guilty go and, and we deny justice to those who are innocent, who are right on. In other words, don't compromise with evil or lawless people in order to overthrow a righteous person. Solomon is talking about a perversion of justice. In other words, those who would pervert justice might use deceitful words to try to persuade us to do something wrong. But we're to not do it. We're to refuse to give in to their false arguments. Verse 6 and 7. A fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. Fool's words, and maybe some of us can attest to this, fool's words get them into constant quarrels. How many times maybe have we said something that has caused an argument, a quarrel? Solomon says here they're asking for a meeting. It, it calls for blows, it says. And the mouth of fools are their ruin. It, it, will, it can ruin them. They, they trap themselves 
with their mouth, with the things that they say, with the things that come out of their lips. And fools love to fight. And this means that the man of destructive words, you know, the wrong, they're held accountable for what they say. And, and it's going to be punished accordingly. You know, the gospel says that, you know, every idle word that man speaks, he will be held accountable for. Verse 8. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. The words of a talebearer, all right, a gossip, a whisperer. You know, those words that come from, from those people, they're, to, the, to those that are listening, they're like tasty pieces of candy, tasty trifles. Tasty candies that go down into the depth of the soul. Now notice, we're back to the subject of the fool. Remember, remember that Jesus told us that we're not to call anyone a fool in Matthew 5, 22. But God can. God calls some people fools. Why? Because he knows them. We don't know people. And we, we, know, and we have the tendency of calling them idiots or fools. But we don't know them. But God does. We find again that the fool is a source of trouble. You know, he's the one who's always stirring up trouble. Always making a fuss, always complaining, always finding fault with people. And we can give another fitting modern proverb that says, be considerate. Most people know how to express a complaint, but few utter a gracious compliment. Isn't that the truth? Man, it, it's easy to complain. But seldom do we offer a compliment. The bee is, here's the example. The bee is seldom complimented for making honey, but it's criticized for stinging. How right on that is. It's so true. Verse nine. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him, is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. In other words, a lazy person is is as bad as somebody who destroys things. God sees a family likeness in the person who, who wastes his employer's time and the person who destroys company uh, property. He sees them the same. The person that wastes the employer's time is just like the person who destroys company property because that time, though it's maybe not something physical, it belongs to the employer. You know, your, your employer is paying you to do a job. And, you know, he expects, you know, to, to, uh, for, for his employees to work, you know, all the time that they're there, you know, other than their breaks and lunch. And, and I can remember when I used to supervise when I was working in a, in a pharmaceutical company in L.A. And when Desert Storm first broke out, they were saying that there was going to be a lot of uh, um, injured ground troops. And so we made a particular product that was going to be for the ground troops that, that would need blood. And we made a particular product that you didn't have to type the blood because what they needed is the protein from the plasma that was in the blood. And so we would make that product. And so it was good. we were going to go to a 24-7 operation until we had enough of that product made to ship out to the troops 
uh, you know, if, if it was needed. And so we were, we were bringing on all kinds of people. And I was, um, and this was, well, you remember when, when Desert Storm was, that was several years ago. But when, when I was, you know, interviewing these people, and, and, and they were temporary positions, but if they did a good job, we brought them on permanent. But I was blown away by the work ethic of many, and they were, many of them were the young people. Not to say that all young people are like, but the majority of the people that came in, they were looking, oh, I really need a job, and you know, I really appreciate it, and you know, I'll do this, and I'll do that. And I, I'd go into the work area, and I'd see them sitting up on a table and just you know, dangling and kicking their legs. Say, hey, man, you, know, you, need to, you need to watch the line here. You need to watch for, you know, for, for you know, broken glass and bottles and the caps and the stoppers that went on the product. And, and uh, well, you know, they didn't like it. Some of these guys would come back from lunch, and you could smell the alcohol on their breath. I said, you're done, guy. What do you mean? I said, I can smell alcohol on your breath. He said, I just had a couple of beers at work. I said, let me tell you something. This product that you're making is going to be injected into maybe our troops' veins. They're already going to be hurting. They're already going to be in bad shape. The last thing, they, would you want this product injected into your family if you know the people working it were drinking? And he just had this dumbfounded look on his face which you know he didn't but but i'd let them go because they weren't working or they'd been drinking and, and just or they didn't show up and say well you know and this was the kicker some guys on the weekend got in trouble and they were in jail and they didn't hear from them from work so we let them go and they'd come in two days later, hey well you know i got to you know i i got busted i was in jail and i go dude if you want a job you need to be responsible i said you're done what do you mean, man? It wasn't my fault. It wasn't your fault. So again, it's just the whole idea of, of, of the, the work ethic. And, and again, your employer is paying you to work, to do a job, and it's in critical. And again, and especially if we're believers, we should be the best employee that the employer has. And so again, this is kind of what, what Solomon is saying here. One destroys, a person can destroy the work process uh, by not working and the other destroys the work product. And, and, and in the line of business that, that I was in at that time, yeah, I said, this is, this is very serious what you're doing here. You know, it's going to be injected into men's veins, men's and women's veins. But both of them, the one who destroys the work process and the one who destroys the work product that you make, they're both wasters. And the one is just as bad as the other. Verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it, and they are safe. The name of the Lord. And, and, and you know, in Psalms, and when we first started Psalms, I had mentioned every time you see the name of the Lord, that phrase, the name of the Lord, you know, underline it, because when you go through it, you'll see how many times the name of the Lord is mentioned. And here Solomon says, the name of the Lord is a strong fortress and the godly run to him and they are safe there. Now the Lord, you notice it's in all capital letters and that was the national name of God, the name of Jehovah. The name of Jehovah is also the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua. He's called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. And he's called Christ because he's the anointed one, the Messiah. 
He's the Lord of our life and the Lord of salvation, our salvation. The Lord, Jehovah God, is a strong tower. You can run to Him whenever you need to, and you will be totally safe. The Lord who is a strong tower, it speaks of, of security, it's, and it reminds us that no one can hurt us there. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the security that you have in God. Verse 11. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. The rich man. The rich think of their wealth as being a strong defense. This is my security. This is my safety. I have money and, and you know, I'm able to buy whatever I want, whatever I need, and, and I'm secure because I have this wealth. And they imagine their wealth to be this, this high wall of safety. Nobody can get to me. The church has not been promised material blessings. And yet God has blessed believers with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, Paul said in Ephesians 1.3. The child of God, hey, we need, we need to be strengthened. We need to get into that strong tower. We need to go to the strong tower. We need to be in this strong city and we need to have a high wall around us. What is that, what is that wall to us or for us? It's the knowledge of the word of God. And we need to recognize, and I'm sure we do, that we are living in very difficult times. And we're being tested. How important it is to have a knowledge of the Word of God. There is no substitute for it. Don't try to find a substitute. There are none. There's no substitute for digging deep into the Word of God. Learn the word of God. Know the word of God. The rich man here, the, wealth, the one who has wealth, they think that their wealth is the strongest defense. Rich people are sadly mistaken in that way. Money can't give safety. It can't buy safety. And it can lose its power so quickly. And in so many ways. The government could go bankrupt and not be able to back it. It can be stolen. Inflation can lower its value. But God can never lose his power. And he's always dependable. Where do you look for security and safety? Do you look for it in wealth that isn't guaranteed? Or God, our refuge, who's always faithful and who's always there? Verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. In other words, haughtiness goes before destruction, and humility precedes honor. Remember when David fought against Goliath? Well, he's a good example of this. Goliath was a champion, a champion of warriors. And in all of his armor... Goliath paraded back and forth in the, in the valley of Elah. He paraded himself back and forth in front of the whole Israeli army. And when they couldn't find, when the Israelis couldn't find a man to fight Goliath, Goliath got even more belligerent. 
As Solomon said, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And I'm sure he thought, hey, there's nobody going to take me on. Look, at I'm, I'm calling them out. I'm choosing them off and nobody's coming out. And all that did was bolster his pride and thought, you know, I'm, I'm the man. And then David stepped to the plate. David was about 16 or 17 years old. But David was already a veteran in his own right. He said, I've killed lions and I've killed bears. But even better than that, David knew God. David knew God. And David was blown away. He was surprised that, that nobody's willing to step up to this guy. Nobody's willing to take on this Goliath. And then in David's humility and his confidence in God, David said, I'll fight him. Because David knew the Lord. And because David knew the Lord, he wasn't afraid of anything. He knew that the Lord would be with him just like he was when he fought the lions and the bears out in the, out in the fields when he was watching sheep. And he knew that the Lord would not be intimidated by this big guy. So David goes on the attack. With, with, with just a simple trust in God. He went to Goliath with only one thing in mind, God. David didn't defeat Goliath because he was a good fighter. He defeated, he defeated Goliath because he believed well. That's why he believed well. Before honor is humility. God honored David. And defeated Goliath because of David's humility. David was humble, and that's why the honor came. He killed Goliath, and in no time, David was known by everybody. And people were saying, Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The Hindu word for humility is said to be dust. Because it's a proverb among the Hindus. You can walk on the dust forever and it never answers back. Humility is self-forgetfulness. And in God's sight, the spirit of meekness is priceless. Verse 13. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. This is, this is an important one, another important one, a key one. Again, in... in in the things that we say. Only fools speak without thinking. And too many times people try to pass judgments or, or, or you know, decide something about somebody else when they really don't know the person. Or they really don't know the, 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 the problem that they're having or the situation that they're in. They don't know what they're going through. And it's really important to have all of the facts before we give an opinion, before we say anything. And there's three basic principles for making sound decisions. Number one, get all the facts before saying anything. Two, be open to new ideas. And third, make sure you hear both sides of the story before making up your mind. All three of these principles center around getting as much information as you can. And if you don't, all you can expect to do is, is probably injure or damage somebody. 
That's what happens when you judge before you get all of the facts. Verse 14. The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? The will to live can get you through sickness, but no one can live with a broken spirit. You know, you can break your arm, you can break your leg, and it will heal, and you'll recover from it. But man, if your spirit is broken, you're totally broken. And only God can encourage you like that. A person could be so obsessed with a passion and so bound up emotionally that they, become, they can become ill. They can become sick. And that's you know, what happens a lot of times when we, when we become anxious and we deal with anxiety and, and, and panic because we can be so obsessed with a passion or so bound up emotionally that we become ill. And we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it to you. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. That is Ziklag. That's where his family and all his friends and those that David was, you know, was watching over, they were in Ziklag. David and the men went out to fight. So David and his men come to the city, and there it was. Ziklag was burned with fire. Notice, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive while David was gone. It says, now David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Notice, because David and his men were gone, they were attacked. And many of the people were taken away, wives and husbands and their daughters. Even David's two wives were taken away during this attack. This attack. And the people were so upset at David that, that they said, they, they spoke about stoning David because the soul of the people were grieved. Grieved, it says, for, for, for every man, for his daughters and his sons. But it says David was distressed. He was so bummed out. But notice David's cure. It says at the end, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Remember after Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, the people still hadn't heard the word of God. And when the word of God was read to them, they saw how far they had strayed from God and they began to weep. But Nehemiah told him, hey, don't cry. Because, because it was a time of rejoicing. He said in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's important for us to know that the joy of the Lord is our strength as well. Here's a motto. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. I like that. Joy is the flag that has flown in the heart when the master is in residence. When Jesus becomes first choice in your life, and when Jesus has the top priority, and when he is your top priority, then you won't have the broken spirit that so many people have today. Give God the first choice. The first choice of your time, the first choice of your effort, the first choice of your thoughts, your companionship, all that you have, your finances. And you know what? When we say we give it to him, there are times when we take it back. 
We've got to quit taking it back. We need to give it all to Him and to give it to Him for keeps. And then see what happens. Verse 15. The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Solomon says, intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. They're open to learning. God made us to be curious about things. He made us curious uh, to be curious about the universe. And he left it up to us to find out all that we can about the earth's origin. The nature and, and the history of the earth by the process of reasoning that is using our brain. As Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Paul said in Romans 1, 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Notice, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says, look around. Look at the clouds. Look at the heavens. Look at the trees. Look at the birds, the grass, the fly, everything. You know, these are, these are the things that he's done. And, he, and he's, he's made himself known to us in, in our souls, in our hearts. Therefore, he says, we're without, an ex we're without excuse. But there are some things that we can only learn through revelation that God, God's truth teaches about. Like the future and the nature of man and sin. It's been said that nobody's ever used more than 2% of his total mental capacity. Can you imagine that? Not even the brightest of men. And those who know the Lord should, should show the same drive and determination to know Him better and to know more and more about the things that He's revealed to us. You know, we're, we're encouraged to grow and, and abound in the grace and the knowledge of God, to increase in the knowledge of God. Verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. In other words, giving a gift can open doors to you. It gives, an, it, it, it gives access to important people. Now, some people in reading the Bible have compared this verse with Proverbs 25, 14 and, and, and say that it's a contradiction in the Bible. But when we get to that proverb, that particular part, we'll see that it's a contrast and not a contradiction at all. Verse 16 here, it's just an observation. Solomon is making an observation here. He says in verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him, in other words, and brings him before great men. In other words, it's, it's kind of like a bribe here. Again, he's making, it's just an observation that Solomon is making. It's not necessarily good. It's evil in some ways. It's evil in some ways that people buy themselves into favor of other people. A man's gift makes room for him. And the gift here in Hebrew is the sense of a bribe. 
And so the gift is to buy favors to get you into a good position with somebody else. That gift that you give to somebody is to open doors for you, is to make room for you. And it brings you before great men, Solomon says. Verse 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. In other words, the first person to speak in court, man, they, they, sound, they sound right on. They present a good case until the cross-examination begins. In other words, a man or a woman, doesn't matter, either one can usually make a good case for themselves until somebody comes along with the other side of the story. And they throw a whole different light on the subject. And as we've said always, there's, there's always two sides to the story. And I, I, and I remember when I used to do a lot of marriage counseling, Sometimes I, the, 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 one of the spouses will call me, hey, you know, you know I, I want me and my husband or me or my, my wife to come in and we, we need some marriage counseling, but you know, can I come in and talk to you first? And I said, sure. But when they get here, I said, we're not going to talk about your spouse because they're not here. We're going to talk about you and what you need to do. And then when your spouse comes, we'll talk about both. But what they basically want to do is to come and tell me how bad their spouse was so that when they came i would say oh you dog you know or you you know you you're really terrible or whatever it is but i would tell them because they're not here we're not going to talk about them when they get here they can present their case and you can say what you want to say and you can present your case and then they can say what they want to say and they can usually make themselves sound like the victim and like the, the 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 spouse is so terrible and then they come along with their side of the story, and, and what a difference in stories. And that's what Solomon is saying here. Verse 18, casting lots, casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. In other words, casting lots can end arguments. It settles disputes between powerful opponent, opponents. This verse suggests two people. That are, at, that are at odds with each other. And their disagreement has built a wall between them. And to settle their differences, they'll cast lots. Today we would say, well, we'll flip a coin. You know, to determine to see who wins. In the Old Testament, the high priest would use the Urim and the Thummim to settle difficulties. And it, and it, and it served as a useful tool. In Acts chapter 1, remember the disciples cast lots to pick Judas Iscariot? to replace, or they picked a cast lots to pick Judas Iscariot's replacement. And casting lots helped to keep conflict or legal action from being dragged out, you know, for long periods of time between powerful people. Verse 19. <clears throat> a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. This is another important one, one that really stands out to me. Solomon is saying, when you offend a brother or sister, many times it's hard to win them back. It's harder to win them back, he says, than a fortified city, than a city that's strengthened. He said, arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. And remember, man, it's, it's easy to offend somebody. 
Offenses, man, they are easily made, but they are hard to resolve. The Bible tells the truth, man. It, it, it tells it like it is. And it has many stories about brothers who are harder to win than a strong city. You have Cain and Abel, for example. There was a, a situation between two brothers that, that never got resolved. And so you have Cain and Abel for you have Isaac and Ishmael. A work of the spirit and a work of the flesh. And I tell you what, the spirit and the flesh, they don't, they don't work well together. You had Jacob and Esau. Jacob the conniver. You had Amnon and Absalom, David, two of David's sons. We're also reminded about the 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 the, the Sad tragedy when church members, Christian brothers and sisters, squabble. They argue over, or like, like kids, over petty things in the church. People's attitudes change. They get bitter. Before, the, before the, the church even started, Jesus set up the action to take for reconciling brothers and sisters. Matthew 18, 15 through 22. Go, if you have something against your brother, go to him. Go to her and you two meet. And you work things out. And it would do the church good to keep these rules in our hearts. Because way too often, man, people take sides. And people get bitter toward each other. And, and, and they will get bitter towards the other side. And I can remember one time in 20 years where I had that happen. And, and it, was, it was terrible. I, I was getting hit on both sides for action that was taken. Because there was two camps, two different sides. If we don't, you know, if we don't listen to, 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 to what Jesus said about settling disputes among one another, we'll experience that sad truth of Solomon's words here in verse 19. Look at verse 20 now. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth, from the produce of his lips he shall be filled. He says, wise words satisfy like a good meal. The right words bring satisfaction. And once again, notice Solomon is talking about our words. And like I said from the very beginning, the, the book of Proverbs is a book really on communication. Because several times you read the, read the words lips, ears, words, tongue, mouth. And so Solomon is talking about our words here and what they say and what the value of our words are and, and, either the, and the help they can bring or the damage they can bring. The next proverb is related to it and it's a Quaker proverb. And it's a Quaker proverb that says this, of our unspoken words, you are the masters. Of your spoken words, the servant. Of the written words, the slave. That's a great proverb. Because, you know, things that we don't say, unspoken, we're the masters. But words that you have spoken, now you're the servant to those words. And of the written words, oh man, you're the slave. So it's just as important to pay attention to what comes out of our mouth as it is to pay attention to what goes into the mouth. Verse 21. 
Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue can bring life or, or death. And those who love to talk, they will reap the consequences of it. Because, you know, if we talk enough, sooner, sooner or later, we're going to say something bad. We're going to say something wrong. Your tongue can be used to share the gospel, and that, and, and that will bring life. But it can also be used to say things that would drive people away from God, which makes our tongue then an instrument of death. And again, we will be held responsible for every, every word that we speak. Your words can lead to death, destroy a person or their spirit, or destroy their courage. Or destroy their courage. Or your words can lift up a person, somebody who's down and out and somebody who's discouraged. You can come along and say something that can bring life to them and hope to them. The power of the tongue can heal and it can destroy. And it's important that we use our tongues as instruments to lift people up, to help them and to strengthen them. Now, even though the tongue, you know, it's, it's not very big. It's small in size, but man, it is the most powerful weapon in this world. And again, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue, not just here in Proverbs. You know, we find a lot of it here in the book of Proverbs. But, but James chapter 3, James dedicates a whole chapter to the wickedness of the tongue. Verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Finding a wife isn't the same as finding a woman. Solomon had no problem finding a woman, a thousand of them. But he probably didn't find a wife in the whole bunch. Solomon doesn't say he that finds wives, but he that finds a wife. And even though Solomon had many wives, nowhere does he justify, nor does the Bible justify plurality of wives. The text teaches us here that a good wife is a good thing. Solomon is talking about a good wife because a bad wife would be a bad thing. Also, secondly, a good wife is a divine gift. Notice they obtain, the man obtains favor from the Lord. And James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. All good things are his, are his gifts. And in premarital counseling, I used to tell couples, you know, there will be times when you go through those, those down times and, and Satan will come in and, 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 and you know, he's going to put that doubt in your mind. Maybe, maybe I made it, married the, the wrong man or the wrong woman and, and I, or maybe I married too quickly and, and I just didn't wait long enough. And, and then you start comparing maybe friends or husbands that, that, uh, of, your, of your friends. And, you know, inside you begin to say, man, you know, I, I wish I had a wife like he, he does. Or I wish I had a husband like she does. And I would tell him, never look at another spouse and say, I wish I had a wife or a husband like that. Because, first of all, you have no idea what that person is like. You have no idea what's going on in their marriage. And I would tell him, remember, God has made your spouse just for you. And I know that for a fact because I have a blessed one. And so, uh, you know, it, 
They're the only ones that can put up with you. And I, I should say that for myself. So that's, that's why I'm so blessed, you know, with my wife, Kathy. Verse 23. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. The poor plead for mercy, the rich answer with insult. Solomon is giving us a sad fact of life here. It is wrong for rich people to treat the less fortunate with contempt and arrogance, and God is going to severely judge them for that. Wealth has a tendency to do that. It has a tendency to make people bullies and it has a hardening effect on their personality. Verse 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Boy, this is a good one. You know, I've heard over the years many times people say, well, you know, I don't know anybody in the church. I don't have any friends in the church, but they never stick around afterwards. They take off. They don't, they aren't any part of a fellowship or a ministry. And, and yet, if you want to have friends, the Bible says you have to show yourself friendly. You have to be friendly. There's a lot of people who stick to themselves. You know, they're loners. They're irritable. They're suspicious of people. And then they complain, I don't have any friends here. This is a cold church. Only the Holy Spirit can change people like this. The Holy Spirit can introduce, introduce them to the friends that stick closer than a brother. And to know Christ is to have a real friend. And Jesus is a friend who will stick closer than a brother. He's our Savior. And He loved us enough to die for us. And he's the one who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And also, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's also given us this promise. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. There isn't anything you can do to improve such a friendship as the one with Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful friend in Christ who sticks closer than any brother ever will. Father, again, we come before you to thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this proverb, Lord, all of the proverbs that just give us wisdom and give us good, sound, moral principles, Lord, good things to live by, Father. Help us, Lord. Help us to take them to heart. Help us to take those that, that, that minister to us, God, that, that deal with us to put them into action, God, that they will help us to become more and more a man and a woman of godly character, Lord. And again, Jesus Christ being our standard, the one that we look to, our model for character. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done for us already, Lord. I pray you would be with your people as they go their way, God. Protect them from harm, from injury, from disease, God. And Lord, bless them. Use them throughout the week, Father. And Lord, we look forward to meeting again next week. And Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.